Hello, I'm your reader, Natalie Chin, and it's time for our birthdays. First birthday is Dorothy Turner of Waterloo, Joanne Midline of Perry, David Carlson of Otho. Happy birthday, you guys. If today is your birthday and you didn't hear your name, give us a call so we can be sure to get your birthday on our list. Here is a reminder that our program schedule has changed dramatically so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. through Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon every day. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m. seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Council City Bluff, excuse me, the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m. seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. The midweek shopping cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will stay with the schedule until further notice. Until further notice, let's get back to the news with our first story from USA Today. First story: Senate approves emergency relief. Bill provides paid leave, free testing, and food aid by Ledyard King, Nicholas Wu, and Crystal Hayes. A measure to ensure paid sick leave for workers and increased testing for coronavirus was headed to President Donald Trump's desk Wednesday after it passed the Senate. Now, Congress is crafting its next emergency relief package, one that would provide direct payments to Americans, as well as a financial lifeline to businesses socked by the coronavirus pandemic that is decimating the economy and upending daily life. Senators overwhelmingly supported a House bill that covers the cost of all coronavirus testing, expands federal food programs serving low-income seniors and needy families, and provides paid sick leave for workers forced to stay home. The legislation passed 90-8. to eight. Third package would send cash to Americans. How bad can, could a recession be? There's little doubt the coronavirus has tipped the U.S. into a recession. Most economists predict the downtown... The downtown will last about six months, with a gradual, I think they mean downturn, will last about six months, with a gradual recovery beginning in the second half of the year. There will also be help for big and small businesses. Two weeks of paid sick leave and family leave to many American workers who are in quarantine, helping a family member with COVID-19 or those who have children those who have children whose schools have closed. These are some of the highlights of the bill. Um, also included in the bill are 12 weeks of paid leave to many of those who have children whose schools have closed, and increased unemployment insurance, as well as free testing for the coronavirus for those who need it. The global picture. What it tells the U.S. America's Coronavirus Case Trajectory Nears a Turning Point by Kim Helmgard and Jim Surgent From London Soon the United States will find out whether it's likely to be the next South Korea or Italy or even China when it comes to the acceleration of coronavirus cases and deaths. A data analysis by USA Today 
finds that two weeks after the U.S. first entered into community transmission on March 3rd, America's trajectory is trending toward Italy's, where circumstances are dire. U.S. officials are sounding the alarm, urging Americans to heed what federal, state, and local officials are asking of them in order to curtail the spread and dampen the impact of the virus on the U.S. population. Although it's too early to draw conclusions about which countries will ultimately weather the COVID-19 storm best, public health data shows nations that are so far faring well at suppressing the outbreak have done so through this combination. Easy access to testing, rigorous contact tracing, clear and consistent science-based messaging, and a commitment to studiously abide by quarantines while clamping down on socializing, no matter how tempting it may be to stray. Quote, when you're on an exponential curve, every moment is dangerous, said Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, in an interview. This is a particularly critical moment for us to try to bring all the resources and determination of government and the American people to try to get off of it, unquote. Outside of China, territories, city-states, and countries in Asia, such as Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan, appear to be making the most progress. But experts say U.S. comparisons to the experiences of other countries are not clear-cut for a variety of reasons, including population size, different medical systems, America's geographic expanse, and cultural reasons that are difficult to account for. U.S. officials are monitoring what is playing out in other countries, particularly Italy, where rates of transmission and deaths in its northern regions have been so catastrophic that the Italian College of Anesthesia, Analgesia, Resuscitation, and Intensive Care recently drew up guidelines for doctors about how to manage the crisis if the outbreak intensifies. Quote, We're following every single country's curve said Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Task Force Response Coordinator, in a briefing Wednesday. For most people, the new coronavirus causes only mild or moderate symptoms, such as fever and cough. But for older adults, especially those with pre-existing health conditions, it can cause much more severe illness, including pneumonia. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's worst-case scenario is that about 160 million to 210 million Americans will be infected by December. Under this forecast, 21 million people would need hospitalization, and 200,000 to 1.7 million could die by the end of the year. Quote, The extent to which we can prevent direct and excess deaths depends on how quickly we can flatten the outbreak, mobilize health services, and for how long we can prevent a relapse, said Robert Muga, founder and director of the Brazil-based security think tank Igarapé Institute and a leading expert on pandemics. Estimates vary, but most public health experts believe that the U.S. is one to two weeks behind what has befallen Italy, where a near-total lockdown has been imposed on 60 million citizens, with only supermarkets and drugstores open to the public. Italian authorities began enforcing their lockdown on March 12th, 18 days after the point where community transmission, defined as more than 100 cases, had taken hold, according to World Health Organization data analyzed by USA Today. It's too early to say whether restrictions in Italy and similar ones in Spain are working. Collins said that if the U.S. takes measures that many Americans might find overly drastic, quote, we should certainly be able to be blunt, the U.S. curve. 
oh, sorry, we should certainly be able to blunt the U.S. curve. But let's be clear, there's going to be a very rough road ahead of us over the next weeks and months, unquote. In the U.S., 115 people have died amid more than 7,300 confirmed cases as of Wednesday, according to Johns Hopkins University's data dashboard. There has been no federally ordered lockdown in the U.S., and access to testing has been sporadic, although President Donald Trump has urged Americans to refrain from gathering in groups of more than 10 people. San Francisco on Monday became the first U.S. city to order its residents to stay home over the coronavirus outbreak. In China, where COVID-19 originated, the outbreak followed a pattern similar to Italy's. The country initially saw an exponential rise in infections. Beijing ordered a complete lockdown in Wuhan and other cities in Hubei, in Hubei province on January 23rd, about halfway into the first 25 days of reported community transmission. Yet, after authorities embarked on one of the largest mass mobilization efforts in history, closing all schools, forcing millions of people inside, quickly building more than a dozen vast, temporary hospitals, and meticulously testing and tracing anyone who may have encountered the virus, Beijing has appeared to all but eradicate new cases. Michael Merson, director of the National University of Singapore Global Health Institute and the Wolfgang Yolklik, Yolklik, professor of global health at excuse me Wolfgang Yolklik, professor of global health at Duke University, both have said that places in Asia such as South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, and Singapore enjoy public health factors that are difficult for countries like the U.S. with its fractured system to replicate. In Singapore, quote. There's strong government leadership, but also trust in the government, Merson said. Every time a case is identified, there is a very strong action plan to identify contacts. It's also very good at promoting handwashing and keeping people at a safe distance from one another. They take prudent steps at prevention, but they haven't entirely shut the country down. Unquote. Trump invokes wartime powers in fight by Courtney Subramanian and David Jackson. President Donald Trump said Wednesday that he was invoking a 1950 law known as the Defense Production Act to speed the production of masks, ventilators, and other equipment vital to helping doctors treat coronavirus patients. He also said the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development would suspend foreclosures and evictions as families grapple with income losses stemming from shutdowns of workplaces such as department stores, restaurants, and bars. Trump told reporters at a White House news conference he planned to sign the Korean War-era Defense Production Act to allow him to address a shortage of medical supplies by directing private companies to expedite the production of medical equipment. Quote, there's never been an instance like this where no matter what you have, it's not enough, he said. If we need to use it, we will be using it at full speed ahead, Unquote. The announcement came as the administration scrambles to negotiate a roughly trillion-dollar deal with Congress to provide cash relief for Americans and possible bailouts for major industries affected by the outbreak. Healthcare workers across the country have expressed concern about hospital shortages of protective equipment, including masks and gloves, that are critical to the doctors and nurses who are on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as ventilators to help treat the influx of patients who have tested positive for the virus. 
quote, The Defense Production Act permits the president to push national security items to the front of the line, said Lauren Thompson, a defense industry consultant and military expert at the Lexington Institute. It exists to speed up urgently needed items, unquote. The president also announced that HUD, the president also announced that HUD, or the housing of the Department of Housing and Urban, Urban Development would provide immediate relief to renters and homeowners by dis- suspending all foreclosures and evictions through the end of April. The suspension applies only to homeowners with mortgages insured by the Federal Housing Administration, an HUD agency that offers affordable loans to homeowners through private firms. HUD Secretary Ben Carson said the move will provide homeowners with some peace of mind during these trying times. The White House also took action on those entering the U.S. in a joint decision with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The two countries are shuttering non-essential travel between the two countries to help limit contact with those who may be sick. Trump said trade would not be affected by the move. Trump also said he plans to invoke a provision that would allow him to prohibit certain people from entering the country, including asylum seekers and those entering the country illegally at the southern border. When asked again whether he was closing the U.S.-Mexico border, Trump said, No, we're not going to close it, but we're invoking a certain provision that will allow us great latitude, he added. On Wednesday, the Senate approved a multi-billion dollar emergency aid package that provides paid sick and family leave for many Americans, bolsters unemployment insurance, and provides free coronavirus testing. Despite Washington's premise of economic aid, U.S. stocks fell sharply Wednesday. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell almost 8%, and Standard & Poor's 500 also sank. The U.S. death toll hit 115, with over 7,300 confirmed cases across the country as of Wednesday afternoon, according to a Johns Hopkins University coronavirus data dashboard. And Tom Vandenbroek appears to have added some more information about what the Defense Production Act was. Um, It was established in 1950 during the Korean War following war powers legislation used during World War II to direct private industry to produce weapons, vehicles, and other material for war. At that time, automakers in Detroit, for instance, shifted production from automobiles to tanks. The act gives the president a broad set of authorities to influence private companies for national defense, according to the Congressional Research Service. In 2009, Congress amended the act to include domestic preparedness and national emergency response efforts. And a quick tidbit of information here as well um, from USA Today Snapshots. Vitamin C is no panacea for COVID-19. While supplements such as vitamin C and zinc are generally beneficial to the immune system, claims that the former will prevent or cure the new coronavirus aren't backed up by science. Thorough handwashing and social distancing remain critical. A 5.7 magnitude earthquake has hit Utah's already shaken residence by Doyle Rice. A 5.7 magnitude earthquake hit Utah on Wednesday morning, the U.S. Geological Survey said knocking out power and rattling residents already shaken up by the coronavirus pandemic. About 73,000 homes and businesses lost electricity in the Salt Lake City area, utility Rocky Mountain Power said, but power was being quickly restored in some areas. 
Some people ran from their homes and into the streets as dishes fell from shelves and pictures from walls. Operations at Salt Lake City International Airport stopped, and the control tower and concourses were evacuated, the airport tweeted. The airport was expected to reopen later Wednesday. The quake also shut down the light rail service for Salt Lake City and its suburbs. People in Colorado, Idaho, Wyoming, and Nevada reported feeling the quake. In downtown Salt Lake City, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints' iconic Salt Lake Temple sustained minor damage. Governor Gary Herbert warned people to stay away from downtown Salt Lake City while crews checked for further damage. There were no immediate reports of injuries, Utah Emergency Management spokesman Joe Doherty said. The quake's epicenter was located near Magna, Utah, which is just southwest of Salt Lake City, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The earthquake hit a little after 7 a.m. local time. An estimated 2.76 million people likely felt the quake, the U.S. Geological Survey reported. Most residents felt their homes shaking for 10 to 15 seconds. New father Ryan Jensen, whose baby was born Wednesday morning at Alta View Hospital in West Jordan, Utah, told USA Today via text that the hospital was rocking. Man, oh man, as if being born in a pandemic wasn't enough, man, that was nerve-rattling, unquote. Janice Fair of Salt Lake City wrote on Facebook, quote, It sounded as though our house was stretching, the Salt Lake City Tribune reported. Added holiday resident John E. Henderson, quote, It felt like somebody picked up my house and dropped it, the Tribune said. It was the largest earthquake in Utah since a 5.9 magnitude quake hit the state in 1992, Utah Emergency Management said. Severe Storms and Tornadoes Possible by Doyle Rice An outbreak of severe thunderstorms, which includes the possibility of tornadoes, is forecast to erupt over portions of the central and southern U.S. on Thursday, forecasters warn. <clears throat> This includes strong winds, large hail, and a few tornadoes, the Storm Prediction Center said. While much of Wednesday was forecast to be storm-free, a round of severe storms was likely in Texas and Oklahoma after sunset, AccuWeather said. Storms were forecast to, quote, threaten areas from Amarillo to Midland with the full spectrum of several weather Wednesday, of severe weather Wednesday evening according to the AccuWeather meteorologist, Kyle Elliott. Later Wednesday night, the storms were forecast to reach Oklahoma City and the western suburbs of Dallas before weakening Thursday morning, AccuWeather said. Localized flash flooding was also forecast to occur Wednesday night from parts of northern Texas and Oklahoma northeastward to the Ohio Valley, the Weather Channel predicted. On Wednesday, yet another round of severe weather is expected from eastern Texas, eastern Oklahoma, and Arkansas to Missouri, Illinois, southern Iowa, and eastern Nebraska. Quote, Thursday poses the greatest risk of tornadoes of the entire multiple-day severe weather risk this week, according to AccuWeather senior meteor meteorologist Alex Suznowski. Cities in the line of fire Thursday include Indianapolis, St. Louis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cincinnati, and Louisville, Kentucky. The severe weather is part of the same storm system that's forecast to bring blizzard conditions to portions of Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, and South Dakota on Thursday.
Moving on to the next article, apologies, I did accidentally tease that in the first um, article that I read for the USA Today this hour. But how bad will a coronavirus recession be by Paul Davidson? Experts say recovery could come in the year's last half. There's little doubt the coronavirus pandemic already has tipped the U.S. into recession, economists say, abruptly ending the record 11-year-old expansion. Now, the two big questions are, how severe will the downturn be, and how long will it last? Assuming the number of U.S. cases peaks with warmer weather in the late April or May, and then wanes, as many health officials believe, most economists predict a recession that lasts about six months and then just a gradual recovery in the second half of the year. Quote, it will likely be a short, a short but sharp contraction, says Gus Foucher, chief econ economist PNC Financial Services Group. This slump is likely to be deep because of a big chink of consumer spending. A big chunk of consumer spending, the economy's main engine, suddenly has come to a standstill. Some states have closed all bars and restaurants or their dining areas, while others have also shuttered movie theaters, gyms, casinos, and other establishments. Even in states and cities that haven't gone that far, many Americans are hunkering down and shunning public places. Sports leagues, such as the NBA and NHL, have suspended games. Macy's, Nordstrom, and Apple are among chains that have shut all stores, and the travel and hospitality industries have been decimated as people avoid flying and cruise vacations. All told, such non-essential spending makes up about 39% of the U.S. economy, according to Pantheon Macroeconomics. Pantheon chief economist Ian Shepardson reckons total outlays on those activities will fall 20% in the April to June period. Activity just came to a sudden halt, says Gregory Daco, chief U.S. economist of Exford, Oxford Economics. That's unprecedented, says Mark Zandi, chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Zandi expects U.S. economic output to fall 1.6% at an annual rate in the first quarter and 2.5% in the second quarter before mounting a slow recovery in the second half of the year that picks up steam into 2021, with growth topping 3% as consumers make pur purchases such as cars and TVs that they deferred during the downturn. Morgan Stanley forecasts a 4% contraction in the second quarter and Pantheon's Shepardson projects a 10% second-quarter plunge in gross domestic product, which would be the biggest quarterly decline since 1958. That's even with a $1 billion trillion... One, excuse me. That's even with a $1 trillion stimulus package, the size the, the White House is seeking from Congress, that rolls out about half those outlays in the second quarter. As revenue in travel and recreation plunges, layoffs have begun and are expected to accelerate. Employment in those sectors tops 18 million, according to economist Michael Faroli of J.P. Morgan Chase. Both Zandi and Daco expect about 1 million job losses in the middle of the year. Zandi figures the 3.6% unemployment rate will rise to 5% by early next year. A stimulus can minimize the damage by expanding unemployment benefits, sending Americans checks to help them spend at reduced levels, and providing loans to small businesses to keep them afloat until the crisis eases. The Trump administration also has proposed tens of billions of dollars in financial aid to the battered airline industry. But don't expect a sharp recovery. 
even after the number of coronavirus cases peaks, Americans are likely to return to restaurants, theaters, and air travel warily, as many fear lingering risk from the virus. Quote, when people are afraid, they don't spend, Daco says. Also, laid-off workers are likely to pull back spending more dramatically, creating a, a negative cycle in which some businesses may be reluctant to hire until sales pick up again, economists say. And it could take time for businesses to ramp back up, especially if their supply chains from China have been disrupted, Sandy says. The good news. The economy is on far more solid footing than it was during the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, which lasted 18 months and caused nearly 9 million job losses. Household debt as a share of GDP is at historically low levels, down from record highs during the previous downturn. And Americans are saving about 8% of their income, versus just 3.6% in late 2007. Quote, Consumers are in pretty good shape, Foucher says. The housing market is also healthy, and low mortgage rates, which could be further pushed down by the Fed's recent interest rate cuts, should bolster sales, Foucher says. Low rates are also leading many homeowners to refinance mortgages, putting more cash in their pockets. Another positive is that the low employment rate has spawned widespread worker shortages, making many companies reluctant to cut employees. Coronavirus changes the way we vote, and Biden sweeps. Former VP dominates all three Tuesday primaries, from Rebecca Morin and Janine Santucci. It was a night of early wins for Joe Biden. Biden swept all three primaries Tuesday night against Senator Bernie Sanders, who was already trailing the former vice president in delegates. Arizona, Illinois, and Florida all held primaries Tuesday, while Ohio, which was supposed to hold a primary Tuesday, postponed it due to the coronavirus pandemic. Some takeaways from Tuesday's primaries. Biden is well on his way to becoming the presumptive Democratic nominee. As several of the television networks noted Tuesday night, the primary maps were lit up Biden blue. Biden won every county in Florida, as well as nearly every county in Illinois, similar to his dominating wins in Michigan and Missouri one week ago. All three races Tuesday were called less than an hour after polls closed. He again widened his league in delegates, and the map and math make it hard for Sanders to catch up. Excuse me, so sorry. The former vice president has more than 1,100 delegates, more than half of what is needed to clinch the nomination, while Sanders trails at a bit over 800. Sanders would need to win several of the upcoming primaries by large margins to remain competitive. Biden's big night came after sweeping the South and winning 10 states total on Super Tuesday, and winning in all but one of the six states on March 10th. And Biden's wins Tuesday were blowouts. In Florida, he was projected as the winner right as polls closed at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, when he led Sanders by nearly 40 percentage points. In contrast, Sanders lost Florida to Hillary Clinton in 2016 by about 30 percentage points. In Illinois, Biden was projected as the winner less than 30 minutes after polls closed. In 2016, the race in Illinois was close, with Clinton at 50 percent, while Sanders was at 48 percent. But the margin between Biden and Sanders was much greater, with nearly 90% of the state reporting. Biden led 59% to Sanders's 36%. Quote, 
Joe Biden was running the table, host John King said on CNN. Voters in three states participated in primaries Tuesday night, but one state was notably, noticeably absent, Ohio, which postponed its presidential primary because of concerns over the spread of coronavirus. With recommendations for in-person gatherings now at a limit of 10, the Ohio governor said in-person polling locations would pose a health risk, and the state was thrown into a last-minute legal battle that resulted in polls closing before they even opened. As some states with upcoming primaries postponing elections, the Democratic National Committee urged states to expand vote-by-mail to all registered voters and extend voting times rather than postpone. The closure of many public spaces had some wondering whether elections in Arizona, Florida, and Illinois should go forward, but the polls remained open Tuesday. Some counties reported poll workers were staying home and locations had to plan for how to handle high numbers of voters in a room at once and the repeated touching of surfaces in voting booths. In Chicago, a number of precincts went to court to stay open an extra hour to combat low turnout due to coronavirus, and early voting broke records there. Florida's Secretary of State said just one precinct opened voting late due to coronavirus concerns, and others in Palm Beach County had, quote, some challenges, unquote. And some voters in all states voting Tuesday experienced confusion due to a change in location of some precincts. Many were moved away from senior care centers to protect the elderly. Others closed entirely in some locations due to a shortage of workers. The majority of Tuesday state's primary voters put their trust in Biden over Sanders at dealing with a crisis according to NBC News reporting on a primary poll that took the place of traditional exit polling. Exit polling was foregone to limit person-to-person -person contact. AP VoteCast data also showed that about 4 in 10 voters in Florida's Democratic primary expressed concern that they or a relative would contract the virus, and almost half named health care as the number one issue facing the country. A majority also thought Biden could handle health care better than Sanders. In Illinois, Voters were about split on their view of the candidate's ability to tackle health care. Just three weeks ago, Sanders was seen as the national frontrunner, having nearly won Iowa, then winning New Hampshire and Nevada. But a lot has changed in three weeks. Now he's trailing Biden by hundreds of delegates and has faced calls from some Democrats, Democrats to exit the race. Quote, with no path to secure the nomination, at Bernie Sanders should drop out said Bakari Sellers, a former Democratic lawmaker in South Carolina and CNN commentator. Sounds like that was on Twitter. Um, getting beat by 10 points plus, I'm being generous, and getting swept isn't a path to winning anything, unquote. Sanders lost all three states Tuesday night. He won only one North Dakota last Tuesday and took four out of 14 states on Super Tuesday. Throughout the campaign, Sanders touted his ability to bring out new voters to participate in the election and power his win. But with turnout up before the coronavirus pandemic, Sanders' prediction didn't pan out. Younger voters have not turned out in the numbers he needs to close the gap with Biden. A key demographic that Sanders has relied on, Latino voters, also did not help carry Sanders to victory this time. Latinos who are not a monolithic voting bloc did not turn to Sanders in Florida or Arizona. Biden won more Latino votes in those states than Sanders did.
Now, let's turn to the opinion section from the Des Moines Register. Iowa cities risk safety with fire cuts. From Your Turn by Doug Nays. Doug says, Firefighters are on the front line to protect our communities and keep neighborhoods safe. In addition to fighting fires, our highly trained professionals provide emergency medical services, respond to vehicle accidents, and perform extrications, water and ice rescues, confined space rec rescues, trench and collapse rescues, hazardous materials response, high and low angle rope rescue, and natural disaster response, to name a few. Our firefighters are prepared to take on many challenges, but in two of our cities, firefighters face new challenges, ones they can't prepare for, that have the potential to upend their safety and their community's safety. In Cedar Falls and Ottumwa, politicians have launched misguided attempts to reform how firefighters protect you and your family. These proposals mean fewer highly trained professional firefighter and paramedics will be ready to respond to our citizens in possibly their greatest times of need. The reduction also puts the lives of firefighters at greater risk while performing their duties. Cedar Falls' city council voted to disband the entire fire department in favor of having police officers provide fire protection. The idea, known as a public safety officer or PSO, gives police officers minimum training to act and respond as firefighters. This concept has proven time and again to be a failed model that results in decreased safety and potentially catastrophic emergency outcomes for both fire departments and citizens. Many cities that have tried this approach have failed and ultimately reestablished their full-time professional fire departments. Meanwhile, the Ottumwa City Council has announced a plan to lay off nearly 20% of firefighters. This would create a danger to public safety as firefighters scramble to provide the services the city expects and deserves. The highly trained and professional firefighters in Iowa provide Excuse me. The highly trained and professional firefighters in Iowa provide all hazards protection for our communities, far more than just fighting fires. Our firefighters are also leaders in their departments and in their communities. Our firefighters are your friends and neighbors and little league coaches at your school, active in your churches and communities. Some are veterans who have honorably served our country and have continued that service as firefighters, protecting our neighborhoods, businesses, and schools. Our firefighters support the local economy, buying homes, cars, and food and clothing for their kids from the same businesses they protect. Sadly, our firefighters may now be forced to leave the communities they so proudly serve. Keeping citizens safe should be the top priority of every city, not a political game that gambles with the lives of our citizens and our firefighters. Iowans should never have to wonder if there will be enough highly trained firefighters or paramedics available to respond during their greatest time of need. Our firefighters commit their lives to being there when you need them. You and your safety are their top priority. With these dangerous policies being proposed by politicians, your safety is being put at risk. We are asking for your help in fighting these dangerous proposals so that we can continue to keep you and your family safe. Call Cedar Falls and Ottumwa Council members and tell them you stand with your firefighters. Doug Nays is president with the Iowa Professional Firefighters, which represents over 1,600 firefighters and EMS professionals across Iowa. And now for some letters to the editor 
further action needed to combat coronavirus. On Maytag beneficiary, Basu's source is suspect. This is from, um, looks like this is from Emily Smith from Clive. Although we are moving in the correct direction, I believe we need to quickly take further action to slow the spread of coronavirus in Iowa. I think it is time to shut down all non-essential business statewide. People should stay home unless on this essential business. There is current research out of China that spreads out of that's, that spread of the virus is mainly being driven by asymptomatic individuals. Having sick people stay home is not enough because there will be many more asymptomatic individuals out in the community spreading disease. There needs to be a mandate or some will choose to disregard the advice and put vulnerable people and our entire medical system at risk. Listen to the medical professionals who are concerned about not having enough supplies. The faster the restrictions are put in place, the better the state and country will be, be will be able to manage. Look at countries who have been dealing with this longer for guidance. They have either closed borders or done, near, done early testing, which we haven't done, or they have countrywide shutdowns of some type. Our country did not manage this early on, so we need to follow this latter strategy, and quickly. We can find creative solutions to the challenges that will bring out the creative and innovative people in our state. At the moment, it is fairly pressing that we do all we can to protect those who are most vulnerable to serious illness and to preserve our medical system and prevent it from being overwhelmed. And Emily Smith, um, her, the blurb in her signature says that Rekha Basu praises Maytag altruism but relies on the leftist smears of the Southern Poverty Law Center to trash a Maytag cause, the Center for Immigration Studies, or CIS. We're told it's, quote, white supremacist. CIS was founded by academics from decidedly non-white supremacist Vanderbilt Law School, University of North Carolina, Cornell University, Old Dominion, predominantly Black Morgan State, and the Congressional Black Caucus. CIS argues for caution and merit, not melanin count, with respect to immigration. Oh, you know what? I think that they... Okay, I'm so sorry, everyone. It looks like the um, they mixed up the titles in the E-edition. Um, that first thing that I read um, was from Emily Smith and Clive, and the title was supposed to be Further Action Needed to Combat Coronavirus. And then I said that um, uh, they, they kind of blended the the uh, letters together. So when I say Reka Basu praises Maytag altruism, that's supposed to be under the title of um, on Maytag beneficiary Basu's source is suspect. And that is from that is from John Burns in West Des Moines. So apologies everyone. Um, they really mixed up the letters here. Uh, so okay uh, from the last paragraph uh, we're told it's white supremacist. CIS was founded by academics from decidedly non-white supremacist Vanderbilt Law School, University of North Carolina, Cornell University, Old Dominion, predominantly Black Morgan State, and the Congressional Black Caucus. CIS argues for caution and merit, not melanin count, with respect to immigration. CIS has never espoused actual hate against immigrants. Sadly, negative immigration facts are now hate speech. Such data are antithetical to open borders, sanctuary cities, and a continuing flood of potential Democratic voters. Democrats were once pragmatic about immigration and pro-border control. That was then.
When a family is prudent and philanthropic as the Maytags support for 17 years, a bunch of mouth-breathing bigots, as Basu and the SPLC allege, the SPLC's broad-brush slander trivializes genuine hate threats. It should be taboo when discussing the Maytag Trust. And that again from John Burns in West Des Moines. Next letter, Citizens United Keeps Government from Speaking for the People, by Tyler Huffman from Des Moines. I urge Senator jo Joni Ernst, Senator Chuck Grassley, and Representative Cindy Axney to overturn Citizens United. This law is unconstitutional in the fact that it takes the power away from the people and into the hands of corporations who, brought my, who bought my elected officials. They no longer work for the people. Instead, they have each been bought and paid for by the corporate elite. We the people, that's whom the Constitution was written for. It was not written for big mis businesses to destroy our democracy. Our democracy was formed so the government was for the people, by the people. The Citizens United decision has brought nothing but destruction to the United States. There is no more united, because the people no longer have their representation. This country has become the most divided it has been since the Civil War. Give the people their power back. Unite this country and do the right thing. I implore leaders to do the ethical thing and the right the wrong of Citizens United and give us the power to take our country back. And the last letter is current railroad system in Des Moines is not working by Judy Averett from Des Moines. Once again, east side traffic was held up by a seemingly endless train. That train went one direction for about a half hour only to reverse itself for another hour. Cars were backed up from the track to East University. I was late to work and am positively sure I was not alone. Do the railroads have to obey time limits or can they just inconvenience east siders and businesses? Our next article in the Des Moines Register opinion section is Prescription Bill Holds Big Pharma Accountable. Big Pharma opposes a bill introduced by Senator Chuck Grassley and supported by Senator Joni Ernst that would curb rising drug, drug prices. But you wouldn't know that from a recent op-ed in the Des Moines Register that calls them pawns of the pharmaceutical industry. The column charged that the Prescription Drug Price Redu Reduction Act, which is supported by both Democrats and Republicans, is a giveaway to pharmaceutical is a giveaway to pharmaceutical companies, falsely claiming that the proposed cap on out-of-pocket costs for Iowans on Medicare wouldn't stop corporations, and that the bill is merely paying lip service to voters. But what it left out were critical details about the bill, while including irrelevant personal attacks on those who support bipartisan solutions. For example, a key detail that wasn't mentioned in the column is that the Prescription Drug Pricing Reduction Act would prevent the pharmaceutical industry from price gouging by creating new guardrails. For example, pharmaceutical companies that raise their prices faster than the inflation rate would have to pay a fine to Medicare, discouraging them from implementing their usual price hikes that have made it difficult for Iowans to afford their prescribed medications. Companies that raise their prices faster than the rate of inflation every year should be fined, or would be fined, helping the many families in our state who have to pay thousands of dollars every year for the life-saving drug. This new fine that prevents price gouging would provide a check on the three insulin manufacturers that practically own the entire market and face little competition that would otherwise help drive down prices. Of course, insulin manufacturers don't want to lose their tr 
their triopoly and are opposing to the penalty, wanting instead to keep their ability to spike prices without consequences. But alas, this wasn't mentioned in the, co in the column. The cap on out-of-pocket costs, while glossed over, would close an existing loophole that has Iowans on Medicare on the hook for an unlimited amount of out-of-pocket costs. Their annual drug bills would be limited to only $3,100, which is less than the cost that some are paying every month for their prescription drugs. Some of our most vulnerable communities would reap the savings, and within a decade, they would save $27 billion in out-of-pocket costs. That's pretty significant. Big Pharma's price gouging would finally come to an end with the Prescription Drug Price Redu Pricing Reduction Act. I'm proud of the work that our senators have accomplished in performing bipartisan support for the bill, which is a rarity nowadays in a divided Congress that can't seem to agree on anything. I hope Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell allows the bill to be voted on soon, as millions of Americans are rationing or foregoing their prescribed medication and putting their lives at risk in the process. With the Prescription Drug Pricing Reduction Act, we can finally lower prescription drug prices in our state. And that article was from Laura Kamenensky, and she is an attorney and the chairperson of the Lynn County Republican Committee. And apologies here, I didn't explain our, um, our editorial cartoon today. Uh, so there's two panels in this cartoon. On the left is a picture of someone washing their hands with soap and water um, into a sink, and there is soap on the sink, uh, a bar of soap on the lip of the sink, and it's, uh, it's entitled Best Disinfectant for Coronavirus. And on the right is the picture of a sun shining very brightly onto a field, um, and there's a flower sprouting in that field, but instead of the actual uh, blossom on the top of that flower, there is a file, a manila file that says open records, and the sun is titled gout transparency, and that part of that section is called best, disinfection for, best disinfectant for corruption. And moving to the opinion page from USA Today, your local businesses need your support. Let's emerge with our communities intact. <clears throat> this is by Maribel Perez-Wadsworth and Kevin Gensel. Our news organizations have always had a special relationship with their local business community. Reporters keep tabs on what's moving in and out, chronicling the changing face of Main Street and the stalwart businesses that have spanned generations. Sales representatives work closely with local businesses to help them promote their goods and services, celebrate their successes, and offer deals to new customers. We sponsor many community events, and our leaders serve on local business associations. As America has seemingly shut down overnight with the spreading coronavirus pandemic, our local business community has acutely felt the loss of its customers and its community. Restaurants that were bustling until just days ago, preparing for patio weather and taking reservations for upcoming birthdays and work events, now sit empty and unsure of when diners will next pass through their doors. Local gyms and daycare facilities, which increased their cleaning regimens in recent weeks, have made the difficult decision to close in the hopes that it's only temporary. Countless downtown storefronts that relied heavily on foot traffic that isn't there anymore are, all, are looking at their bottom lines wondering how long they can weather the storm. 
and so it is at this precipitous time that we're reaching out to implore our communities to offer a strong show of support for their local businesses. Just as we are doing all we can to bring vital news and information to help keep residents safe through this crisis, we feel just as strongly about supporting the local business community. The safety measures that have forced us indoors and away from others to help stop the spread of COVID-19 are the right thing to do. We're confident our strength and resilience will carry us through. But we also recognize that our small business owners need us more than ever as they take their own precautions. To emerge from this with our community strong and intact, we need to ensure that what makes them special, the coffee shop down the road, the local car dealership, and our neighborhood music teachers, are able to stay afloat. While we may not be able to give them our patronage in person right now, there is much we can do to show our support. Visit your favorite restaurant's website and purchase gift cards for yourself and others to keep some money flowing to their bottom lines. If those restaurants are still offering takeout or delivery, make a point to order from them now and again soon. And get gift cards for massage studios, arts and craft stores, local jungle gyms, and myriad other businesses. If your local shops sell their merchandise online, make purchases, even if the goods won't be available right away. If you're shopping online for things you'll need while in self-quarantine, like home exercise equipment or activities for the kids, seek out local businesses to make these purchases. If you use a service provider who won't be needed or can't provide that service right now, like a dog walker, house cleaner, daycare provider, or a lawn service, or any of the other folks who keep our lives in order and make them better, consider paying the person or company regardless, so they'll be there for you again when this is over. Also, visit the websites of your favorite local businesses, and you'll find that many are offering discounts or telling their customers how they can assist. Many are getting creative and changing their business models already to offer services remotely or shipping their merchandise to their customers. We're also committed to doing our part and will introduce new tools in the coming days to help facilitate support for the business community. At a time when much feels out of our control, there's plenty we can do to help our local businesses survive this. In recent days, we've all seen the incredible efforts they've taken for us, from additional cleaning to limited hours to ample hand sanitizer at the checkout. Now, let's do what we can do for them. And um, the, today's political cartoon, uh, it, oh... <laughs> So it is a picture of a, um, a uh, oh gosh, what are they called? I'm totally blanking here. But they're the, uh, what, the, the meter, the pay meters for cars um, to park. And uh, it's Bernie Sanders and he's, yeah, it's, it's an old fashioned pay meter. So instead of um, like a digital expired, it's actually uh, a manual um thing that actually like sprouts up if that makes any sense and Bernie Sanders is trying to push it down and he's saying where's free money when you need it because he's trying to push down the expired apologies for my descriptions of today's political cartoons I'm doing my best moving to today's debate campaign 2020 our view for Democrats Biden's message matches the moment Less than three weeks ago, Joe Biden's presidential campaign looked like a roadkill. The former vice president finished fourth in the Iowa caucuses, fifth in New Hampshire, and second in Nevada to Senator Bernie Sanders.
Sanders, the self-described Democratic Socialist from Vermont, appeared on his way to claiming the Democratic nomination. Um, and I'm so sorry, you're probably hearing my cat in the background. She's being very whiny. And this is the only way that I can keep her as relatively quiet as I can. Um, sorry, back to the article. Uh, then came one of the most astonishing turnarounds in modern U.S. political history. Riding an endorsement from veteran Representative James Clyburn and strong support from African-American voters, Biden won the South Carolina primary decisively. He swept 10 of 14 states on Super Tuesday and captured five of six contests the following Tuesday, including the crucial Michigan primary. This Tuesday, Biden dominated in Arizona, Florida, and Illinois, and Ohio postponed its vote leaving him with an all but insurmountable delicate lead and leaving Sanders assessing the future of his candidacy. How to explain this remarkable comeback? Put simply, Biden's campaign best matched the moment and the mood of Democratic voters. The bulk of those voters, it turned out, weren't interested in political revolutions, ideological purity, youthful small city mayors, or budget-busting plans for everything. They wanted an experienced hand with a fundamental sense of decency. Someone who they think has the best chance of ousting President Donald Trump from the White House. Someone who can be competitive with working-class voters in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and the other battleground states that will decide the presidential election. Someone who has overcome great tragedy in his own life and is empathetic towards those who are suffering in theirs. Someone with enough experience in government to deal rationally with a crisis like the coronavirus pandemic. When I'm president, uh, quote, when I'm president, we will be better prepared, respond better, and recover better, Biden promised. We'll lead with science and listen to the experts, and I will always, always tell you the truth, unquote. From the launch of his campaign through his recent Tuesday victory speeches, Biden made it clear that this is not a typical election about the usual ideological differences. It's an election that has character on the ballot, one that is about restoring decency, dignity, and honor to the White House, and replacing a president who demeans and de demonizes people with a president who believes in empathy, compassion, and respect for everyone. Biden's newfound frontrunner status, of course, hasn't erased his vulnerabilities, his gaffes. His age, 77, his half-century as a Washington insider and the long trail of votes that comes with that, including his support for the 2003 Iraq War and his opposition to the 1991 Persian Gulf War. His hesitancy about the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. His son, Hunt his son Hunter's ill-advised business dealings in Ukraine. At least for now, though, Democrats have sorted through a field of more than two dozen hopefuls and settled on Biden as the one with the right message for these turbulent times. Whether he's the right messenger will be tested in the weeks and months ahead. And that's it for our second hour of The Register on IRIS. We're so glad to have you listening. I'm your reader, Natalie Chin. Coming up next, obituaries from the Des Moines Register. <laughs> 